0: I'm reading um, from 2 Corinthians 4, the verses 16 to the fifth chapter of Corinthians, to verse 10. Um, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that that if the tent that our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage.
1: Okay, so uh, if you are new here, we are working our way through uh, Paul's second letter to the Christians in Corinth. And um, if if you know this uh, church, one of the problems that they were facing was a group of new leaders in the church who were critiquing Paul's life and ministry because the, the things that mattered to them, Things like image and success. If you applied those criteria to Paul, to Paul's life and Paul's ministry, Paul does not come out looking all that special. But what's interesting is that Paul knows that. Okay, he knows that in comparison to what other people think a successful life looks like, he doesn't look all that great, does he? Okay, but think about your own life. Think about how your life appears. I mean, do do you ever find yourself thinking the same? That compared to the glossy media images of the amazing life that you are supposed to be living, you've got problems with your health. Maybe you've got problems in your relationships. Maybe you recognize that you've got problems in your own character. Or life is just hard. And sometimes when those things are true, it can be enough to get us down, can't it? You compare yourself to what everyone else's life seems to be like. You look at your own, and that can be enough to get you down. Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Okay, which is great, isn't it? But how are you supposed to do that? Okay, when by any external measure, things don't look that great, How do you not give up? How do you not get down? How do you not become discouraged? That is what Paul wants to talk to us about this morning. First point then, perseverance. Perseverance. Now, there's an English expression that says, don't judge a book by its cover. Meaning, hey, don't judge someone just by their external appearances. I mean, sure, he may not look that great. Sure, he, sure his nose may be too big or his, his legs might be a bit short and they're a bit bowed. He might not be much to look at, but hey, he's got a heart of gold. Okay, when it comes to Paul's critics, okay, they were most certainly judging by external appearances. Okay, because by all appearances... Paul's life and ministry is not exactly star-spangled, is it? And in a culture like Corinth, that values the entrepreneurial, the grab-hold-of-life, appearance-is-everything attitude, Paul does not exactly come out glowing. This man gets beaten up by mobs He gets accused before magistrates. He gets thrown out of cities and thrown into jails. And he lives short on cash. And to help make ends meet, he works a dead-end job as a tent maker. I mean, this is hardly the life of the celebrity aspirational role model, is it? Okay, If that is how things appear to his critics, how does Paul's life appear to himself? Okay, we'll look back at chapter 4, verse 7, which we looked at last week. We have this treasure in jars of clay. And then verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Okay, so as Paul looked at the external reality of his life, there would be plenty to be discouraged about, wouldn't there? Jar of clay, physical weakness, affliction, perplexity, things um, like decisions or other people's attitudes not always being clear, life's perplexing, persecuted, attacked. Okay, and yet listen to what Paul says in verse 16, "We do not lose heart." Okay, Think about that, because you do not need to put yourself in Paul's shoes to see how remarkable that is. Okay, you can just stay in your own shoes. Paul describes himself as a jar of clay. He's nothing special. You can look at yourself. And know, with zero sense of self-pity, you just know, hey, I'm not one of the world's beautiful people. And you know, I, I know my weaknesses. And I'm painfully aware of my brokenness. Jar of clay. Paul says he's afflicted. And at the moment, you know, some of you are suffering physically or emotionally. Paul says he's perplexed. And maybe you look at the circumstances of you know, life out there in the world or, or your own life or your family and you think, man, how did we end up here? How did this happen? Paul says he's persecuted. Now, I don't know about you, but you, m- maybe you find it, it is getting harder and harder to live out the life of faith and be a, pers- a person of integrity, whether it's in the workplace or on campus, to say nothing of what it is to try and raise kids today. Paul says he is struck down. And maybe you feel like you have been taking blows and that some of them have landed. And when life is like that, it is easy to lose heart, isn't it? It's easy to become discouraged. But Paul says we do not lose heart despite all of this we are not discouraged. And listen, that is not because he refuses to accept reality. Verse 16 again. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Okay, So Paul knows from, the, from an external perspective, he's wasting away. He knows that from an external perspective, things don't just look bad, they are bad. Okay, Paul is not a fantasist. He is not burying his head in the sand. You know, Sue says that I live under, Sue's my wife, Sue says that I live under the delusion that I am still 24. Okay, which is sadly true. But then occasionally, what happens? Occasionally, I'm walking down the, the street, I catch my reflection in a shop window, and I think, wow. That cannot be me. Okay, that's an old man. He's, where's his hair gone? He's gone grey. Okay, Paul is not a fantasist. Paul is not living under any delusions. Paul says, hey, I know this is me. I know externally I am wasting away. My body is aging. Externally, things are not all that sparky. Okay, Paul is a clear-minded realist. But Paul says, excuse me, <clears throat> but Paul says that is not the only way to see things. There's another way to view things because, verse 16 again, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Okay, now, particularly in today's world, okay, you've got to be clear about what Paul is not saying. Okay. Paul is not saying that there's his outer physical self, things like his body, but that's not the real me. The real me is the inner me. That's not what Paul is saying. He is comparing what he and these Corinthians and you and I can see, the difficulties, the sufferings, the tribulations of life, and he is comparing that to what God sees. Because, Paul says, there is a whole other dimension. And when you see that other dimension, it totally changes how you see everything else. Okay, so first point, perseverance. Second point, perspective. Excuse me. Now, recently... Recently, I was told that I could audition for the role of Gandhi in a film. Okay, I didn't, know wh- I didn't know whether to be flattered or offended. Okay, but apparently, Gandhi once said, "The future depends on what we do in the present." Okay, the future depends on what we do in the present. Okay, now, hey, there's some truth in that. Okay, there's quite a lot of truth in that. Christianity says something in addition to that that is very different. It says that what you do in the present should depend on the future, that how you live now should be shaped and inspired and formed by what is to come. Think about it. It is always the end of the story that determines the meaning of everything that goes before, isn't it? You know, whether it's a novel, whether it's a film, if it's a good one, if it's a good one, you get to the climax, and there's this "Aha moment. Ah, now I understand. Now I get it. That's what that character was doing. That's what those clues were about. That's who the culprit really was. Now I get it. You get to the end, and it's the end. That makes everything that comes before make sense okay look what paul says in verse 17 for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison in other words fast forward to the end of your story read ahead to the finale See how everything that God is doing in your life is going to work out. And you will keep going. And you will take heart. Because as Paul turns the light of the future onto the shadows of the present, things that when you are experiencing them are heavy, and they're pressing down on you, and they feel like they're never going to end, when you turn the the, the light of the future onto them, they become, Paul says, light and momentary. Why? Because it's not just that God is working in our sufferings, but through them. That these afflictions themselves, Paul is saying, are preparing something far greater for us. That just as fire purifies metal, precious metal. Just as pressure changes coal to diamonds, so present difficulties are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And when you see that, Paul says, very real, present, heavy suffering, he says it becomes lightweight. You can carry it something hard that leaves you saying i just want this over becomes momentary here today gone tomorrow in comparison to the real weight of the eternal never-ending glory that god has in store for you okay now to say it again okay paul is not a naive optimist he is not saying oh come on pull yourself together things aren't really that bad hey, you you just need to have a more positive attitude to life no Paul is saying no they really are this bad hey, they really are this bad but in comparison to what is coming they're light so you can bear them they're momentary so you can endure them I mean, think about it. Why does worry invade our present? Even to the point sometimes where we are controlled by our worries and our anxieties. Why does that happen? Because we think our present and or our future are out of control. Out of our control and out of God's control. So we worry about it. And as a result our problems grow in size. But when we realize God has got all of this under control and he's not just working in our lives despite our problems, but that through them he's preparing us for something far more glorious, then our problems begin to shrink in size. And look how Paul says that happens, verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, if you were living in Corinth, I mean, hey, if you're living now, right? Life, life back in Corinth was all about stuff that's seen. I mean, to survive, food and drink, your life depends on stuff that's seen. Image, appearance, wealth, power, this is the stuff that makes the wheels move. And they're all tangible. They're all concrete. And so are their opposites, like poverty, suffering. And it's no different today, okay, which is why the scene, the tangible, con- concrete success or power or appearance, or their opposites, these solid things, they just have this power to grab our attention and shape the way that we do and see life, don't they? You know, we're impressed by money, we're impressed by power. We need food, we need drink. These these are what effectively control our lives. But Paul wants you to see a whole other realm, the realm of the unseen. And the things that you can see, he says, they all have their time limit. They all have a sell-by date. The beautiful person will age. There's perfect white teeth. They will fall out. The powerful person will fall from power. Your bank account will be of no interest to death when death comes knocking. And when it does come knocking, even suffering has a time limit. Even suffering will end. So success Or suffering, they all have a shelf life. But the unseen, that lasts forever, Paul says. And it's the unseen realm that we have got to learn to see. Now, do you remember the story of Elisha the prophet and his servant? And they're surrounded by this enemy army. What does Elisha's servant do? He rightly interprets their circumstances, doesn't he? He rightly gets just how bad things are. To use a theological term, he knows that they are totally stuffed. They're stuffed. Elisha sees things differently because he sees the unseen. And he says to his servant, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays for him that his servant's eyes would be opened, and they are, and now the servant sees what Elisha sees, and the mountains are filled with horses and chariots of fire. What does that do for the servant's fear? How big does the enemy army look now? How scared is he now? Because, as Paul says, he has seen the unseen. What is that for you and me? Third point, the truly permanent perseverance' perspective, the truly permanent now every, every Friday morning, I spend an hour with my elderly neighbor talking French okay he's my French teacher, and he, he he's a he's an amazing guy okay he makes these incredibly detailed scale model sailing boats that work and they've got you know they've got radio controlled sails that go up and down and booms and masks so that all move they've got cannons that fire gunpowder you know, the latest one he's just finished building even has this this barrel of rum that will dispense you a drink if you want it And when I'm not understanding something in French, and he needs to explain uh, some meaning to me, where do you think he turns for an illustration? He always goes to boats or to to model making. Why? Because that's what he does. Paul is a tent maker. Where does he go for an illustration? Chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In other words, your physical body, your life, Paul says, is a tent, a man-made tent, a temporary structure, and it is slowly being dismantled by ageing and the trials that you're going through. And one day, death will complete the dismantling process, but when it does... God is going to give you a house, a building not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, which is your resurrection body. Okay, now, when the weather is good, a tent is fine, isn't it? I mean, like Hannah was saying on, on Lesvos, you know, the tents are fine in the summer. Okay, when winter comes, that's another matter. When the weather is bad, you know you're in a tent, don't you? I mean, if, you, if you've gone camping and you've got the forecast wrong and the wind starts getting up, you know it, don't you? Because the, the poles, they, they start bending and the sides start bowing. And you lie there thinking, why didn't I book the hotel instead? And it is when you are going through the trials of life that you know just how weak and frail you are and you wish that you weren't. Verse 2. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Now, I don't know about you. There is something about camping that just makes you groan, isn't there? Okay, am, am I the only one? Okay, if you go camping, there is something about camping that makes you groan, isn't there? Okay, you pitch your tent thinking, wonderful, wonderful we get to spend we get to camp out under the stars we get to be close to nature and what happens there's a baby in the next door tent who screams the entire night and the next moment the next morning what do you do you you get up and you smile at them and you bless them because you're a Christian. And you tell yourself okay it 's all right i 'm going to sleep well i 'll sleep well tonight i 'll be so tired i 'll sleep well tonight, and what happens that night? Your mattress deflates, and there is this stone underneath your back and And what do you do? You groan, and that is life, Paul says. Life is always throwing the harsh realities of life, whether it 's other people or circumstances can leave us groaning. But why do you groan? Why groan? Why, when life is hard, do you think it shouldn't be like this? Why do we view suffering as an alien outside invader, an intruder? That life shouldn't be like this. Why do you think like that? Because it shouldn't be like this. Because you were made for a world where there is no suffering. You groan because you are longing for another world. As Paul says, you are longing to put on your heavenly dwelling, a house, not a tent, a resurrection body, not a mortal body. Because you are longing for the reality of the unseen, for the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, now is that just fairy tales? Because hey you need something solid don't you? If you are really facing it you need something solid to depend on. You don't just need fairy tales. I mean how can Paul be so certain? Why the overflowing confidence of verse 1? For we know. Why that confidence? Because the other apostles in Jerusalem And Paul, on the road to Damascus, had encountered the risen, glorified Jesus, who once was dead, now raised from the dead, in the solid, tangible, more real than life reality of his resurrection body. Paul has zero doubt about the solidity of the resurrection. Jesus was crucified in weakness, but he was raised in power. And in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And it is the fact of Christ's resurrection that makes our future resurrection more real and more solid Than anything we can experience now, Paul is saying. Okay, so when the day comes when it will feel like darkness has finally won and death comes to you, Paul says that is when you will experience the true reality of the unseen. Verse 5 that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. When he says in 1 Corinthians 15, The perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality and death is swallowed up in victory. Guys, we tend to think that this life is life, don't we? And it is, but it's mortal. It is perishable. It has a time limit on it. And in Christ, something far more solid, far more real, far more lasting is coming. In his confessions, Augustine talks of a time early on in his life when he looked at the circumstances of his life and they were just overwhelming him with worry. And he does the Christian thing. He tries to hand his worries over to God. But he describes how these worries just keep on sliding back. He keeps on trying to push them to God, but they keep on sliding back to him. And and Augustine came to realize the reason He says of God, you were not yourself, but a mere phantom, and my error was my God. In other words, Augustine realized his anxieties and his current problems that he's anxious about, Mm. they were his God because they were more real to him than God was. And in comparison to all of these seen problems, he says God was just a phantom. And he says of God, You are not to me any solid or substantial thing. But when, as happened for Augustine, God and the future that he is preparing for us become solid and substantial. And Augustine set his heart, I'm going to get to know God as he really is. And when you do that, when God becomes solid and substantial for you, when the future he is preparing for you becomes solid and substantial for you, then the anxieties about the present disappear like shadows in the light. Look at verse five. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Now, a trainer might prepare a boxer for a match, but the boxer's still got to get in the ring and fight, hasn't he? And he may lose, a coach might prepare his team for a game, but they've still got to get out there and play, and they still might lose. That is not the kind of preparation that Paul is talking about, because, verse 5, God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Okay, so Paul is not talking about being prepared for something that where the future is in doubt. He is saying... The future is guaranteed like a bridegroom preparing his bride for their wedding day by giving her an engagement ring, a guarantee that says you are mine and one day I'm taking you home to be mine. And the Holy Spirit is in you as God's guarantee, Paul says, his promise that he is preparing you for the reality and solidity of eternity. Okay, so it's no wonder I think Paul gets back to his theme, verses 6 to 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. Okay, so this life in this mortal body is our home. And yet Paul says it's not our home because, verse 8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so in between, verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. We live trusting, knowing that God is something solid and substantial and that he is working something solid and substantial through our suffering. Listen to what Martin Luther said. He said that it's this faith that is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. This confidence in God's grace makes men glad and bold and happy. The grace of God makes you glad and bold and happy. When you know the grace of God that the tent of Jesus' body was broken down for you, that he suffered for you, you will trust him that he is working through your suffering. Because the story doesn't end with Jesus' broken body, does it? It doesn't end with his tent being dismantled. It ends with his resurrected and glorified body It ends with the empty tomb and sin and death vanquished. It ends with Christ ascended and glorified and reigning in his glorified body. And it ends with us along with him being prepared for an eternal weight of glory. It is that grace that he would do all of this for us that has the power to make, Glad and bold and happy. But to finish, it'll also do something else for you. Last point living to please Him. Look at verses 9 and 10. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, in Roman cities, the tribunal, you know, with its judgment seat, was typically located in one of the central squares of the city. And the governor would sit there in judgment. In fact, if you, uh, in, if you know from Acts, on Paul's first visit to Corinth, Paul had been taken before the judgment seat of Gallio, the proconsul, where he had to make a defense of himself. And Paul is saying... Listen, it is not just that one day your physical body is going to be raised. It's not just that one day you are going to enter eternity. It is that one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And knowing that, that future should radically impact how you live now. We live to please Him, He says. But listen you can want to please someone for two very different motives can't you you can want to please someone out of fear or out of love if you've got a bad boss you may want to please him or her just to stay out of trouble just to keep them off your back but if you have someone special to you you want to please them because you love them fear Or love, which is it with Jesus? Does Paul think that you and I are in trouble? We've got to stand before his judgment seat and we're going to have to plead our cause. We've got to try and get him on our good side by doing good things. Is that what Paul thinks? That we should live to please him out of fear? No. Paul knows that Jesus stood before the judgment seat, he stood before the judgment seat of Pilate and he was condemned in our place, so that for all who put their trust in him, and if this is you, there is no condemnation, there is no fear for you, that we will appear before him for commendation, not condemnation, for well done, good and faithful servant. You see, when you know that Christ loves you so much that he was condemned for you, you will love him in response. And you will see the things that he has given you, your gifts, your abilities, your influence, your intellect, you'll see them as his good gifts entrusted to you as his servant, and you will take them and use them for his glory and for others good. You will live to please him, not because you fear him in a wrong way, but because you love him in a right way. You will take your success and you will use that success to help build others up. You will take your suffering and use it to help others in their suffering. And the solid realities of the future will flood your present as you walk by faith, not by sight. Let's pray.